Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, this is Denise, reading to you the Monday, September 11th, 2023 edition of the Cape Cod Times. We begin with the weather. Today, a high of 77 with a low of 67, mostly cloudy, humid, a stray p.m. thunderstorm. On Tuesday, a high of 76 with a low of 67, clouds and sunshine with a shower, humid. On Wednesday, mostly cloudy, a shower and a thunderstorm, humid, a high of 77 with a low of 67. On Thursday, pleasant with times of clouds and sun, a high of 75 with a low of 59. On Friday, a high of 73 with a low of 59, mostly cloudy, a shower possible, windy. The sun will rise today at 6.17 a.m., set at 6.58 p.m. for a total of 12 hours and 41 minutes of daylight. In the Lottery, dated Sunday, September 10th, the numbers game, midday, 0674, midday again, 0674, the numbers game, Sunday, September 10th, evening drawing, 1830, again, 1830, mass cash for Sunday, September 10th, six. 23, 25, 27, 34. Mass cash again, 6, 23, 25, 27, 34. And lucky for life, dated Sunday, September 10th. 9, 16, 19, 20, 48, with a lucky ball of 3. Again, 9, 16, 19, 20, 48, with a lucky ball of three. On the front page, woman's cancers traced to 9-11, certified survivor by WTC Health Program after diagnosis by David Oliver, USA Today. Courtney Clark never considered herself a 9-11 survivor. Sure, she was a 22-year-old recent NYU grad blocks away from where the Twin Towers toppled over after planes plummeted into the iconic New York buildings. Sure, she was one of the many Americans traumatized by the tragedy. But she had had her life, her marketing career, her family, her health. Or so she thought. Clark, 44, has been diagnosed with melanoma four times since that horrible day, and recently found out that she's one of about 30,000 people who can directly trace their cancers to 9-11 as part of the World Trade Center Health Program. By their standard, she is indeed a 9-11 survivor. It took almost 20 years to even realize that it was the cause of all of those other issues in my life, Clark, now of Austin, Texas, tells USA Today. Clark is a consultant, speaker, and author focused on adaptability and resilience, not to mention an adoptive mother to a teenager she can't have children of her own because of her health conditions. 
You don't always get answers and you're not always in control. And yet sometimes the things that you're asking for you, you just have to go at it a different way, she adds. It just disappeared into a puff of smoke. When she arrived at work that day, 22 years ago, it was empty and work was never empty. She sat for about five minutes before a colleague and other folks came running in. They ushered her into another office in the hall because theirs didn't have a TV. They were saying on the news a propeller plane had hit the World Trade Center, but the guy in the office was on the phone with his boss, who was stuck in traffic on 6th Avenue, and she was telling him on the phone as we were there, she was telling him an American Airlines plane, it flew, I saw it, it flew over me, she called her mom and stepdad, who were in Illinois, and she told them she was fine. She was located 16 to 18 blocks north. My colleagues and I go back down on the street and we're standing with what feels like an entirety of New York City. Everybody is just standing, looking south and watching this happen. What we didn't realize in that time period, that's when the second plane had hit. She remembers one of her colleagues saying, it feels like this is a movie set when we're just waiting for someone to save us. And then after standing there for I don't know how long, all of a sudden the second tower just evaporated from the sky. From where we were standing, it's like it just disappeared in a puff of smoke. Slowly, health issues kept appearing. About four years later, she noticed she had a mole that was growing and changing. A visit to the dermatologist confirmed her eagle-eyed skin monitoring. She was diagnosed with invasive malignant melanoma, stage 1b2a. They were able to remove it surgically, only for it to reoccur two years later and two more times after that. When it came back to the second time, the oncologist said, it's not common for it to come back, like most people get melanoma one time and then they don't get it again, and you're being so careful in the sun, but it's not unheard of, and then it came back a third time, and then it came back a fourth time, and it's like, what is going on here? Her husband Jamie saw something on television about the World Trade Center health program. He's te texting me and he's like, what was the address of your job? And I said, I don't know. I was right out of college. I don't know. That was so long ago. And he said, well, was it within a mile and a half of the World Trade Center? She applied to the program and had to list details like where she worked and lived and why she spent so much time in that area of New York. Then I had to get all of my doctors to send their information showing when I was diagnosed. So there's a latency period for everything, every different disease, specifically, mostly, cancer. If you were diagnosed with a cancer on October 1st of 2001, that didn't have anything to do with 9-11. The latency period for melanoma was four years. I was diagnosed four years Four years, two months, and a week later. Turns out my body sure really likes to grow melanoma, as my oncologist says. Plus there's her asthma, which also cropped up after 9-11. After providing the organization with medical details, she found out it was traceable to that day. The organization certified her, and now she sees one of its doctors annually. Clark also gets scanned every six months at the hospital, and in between a dermatologist, she sees her at home. She often says, at some point in my life, there's going to be no skin left. They're going to have biopsied it all. A different path to closure. Clark still visits New York, but she won't ever visit the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. I think that would be too much, she says, choking up as she speaks and pauses. I've heard it's so lovely. I heard it's just incredibly respectful and beautifully done. I don't know what that, that that's something that I may ever feel ready to do. For her... 
Closure arrived in a different way, telling her story. What a sad, sad, horrible, horrible day. Updated vaccine trio soon. Patients can be protected against COVID, RSV, flu, averting a triple-demic. Washington. Updated COVID-19 vaccines are coming soon, just in time to pair them with flu shots. And this fall, the first vaccines for another scary virus called RSV are rolling out to older adults and pregnant people. Doctors hope enough people get vaccinated to help avert another triple-demic like last year when hospitals were overwhelmed with early flu. And an onslaught of RSV or respiratory virus and yet another winter coronavirus surge. COVID-19 hospitalizations have been steadily increasing since late summer, although not nearly as much as this time last year, and RSV already is on the rise in parts of the southeast. Approval of updated COVID-19 shots is expected within days. They are among the tools the new director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention says will help put the U.S. in our strongest position yet to avoid another chaotic respiratory season. There will be a lot of virus this winter, CDC Chief Dr. Mandy Cohen said. That's why we want to get ahead of it. Here's what you need to know about fall vaccinations. Why more COVID-19 shots? The ever-evolving coronavirus isn't going away. Similar to how flu shots are updated each year, the Food and Drug Administration gave COVID-19 vaccine makers a new recipe for this fall. The updated shots have a single target, an Omicron descendant named XBB. It's a big change. The COVID-19 vaccines offered since last year are a combination shot targeting the original coronavirus strain and a much earlier Omicron version, making them very outdated. Pfizer, Moderna, and Novax will all brood new supplies. The FDA soon will decide if each company has met safety, effectiveness, and quality standards. Then the CDC must sign off before vaccinations begin. A CDC advisory panel is set to meet Tuesday to make recommendations on how best to use the latest shots. Will they be effective enough? Health officials are optimistic. An expected XBB 1.5 has faded away in the months it took to tweak the vaccine. Today, there is a soup of different coronavirus variants causing illness, and the most common ones are fairly close relatives. Recent lab testing from vaccine makers and other research groups suggests the updated shots will offer crossover protection. Earlier vaccinations or infections have continued to help prevent severe disease and death, but protection wanes over time, especially against milder infections as the virus continually evolves. Most Americans haven't had a vaccination in about a year. Who also needs a flu vaccine? The CDC urges a yearly flu shot for pretty much everyone six months and older. The best time is by the end of October. Like with COVID-19, influenza can be especially dangerous to certain groups, including the very young, older people, and those with weak immune systems and lung or heart disease. There are multiple kinds of flus vaccines to choose from, including a nasal spray version for certain younger people. More important, there are three shots specifically recommended for seniors to choose from because they are proven to do a better job revving up an older adult's immune system. Can I get both at the same time? The CDC says there is no difference in effectiveness or side effects if people get those vaccines simultaneously, although one in each arm might be 
uncomfortable. What's this new RSV vaccine? RSV is a cold-like nuisance for most people and not as well known as the flu, but RSV packs hospitals every winter and can be deadly for children younger than five, the elderly, and people with certain high-risk health problems, most notorious for inflaming babies' tiny airwaves, leaving them wheezing. It's also a common cause of pneumonia in seniors. RSV vaccines from GSK and Pfizer are approved for adults 60 and older. The CDC is advising seniors to ask their doctors if they should get a one-dose shot. The FDA has also approved Pfizer's RSV vaccine to be given in late pregnancy so protections can be passed on to newborns. Barnstable Panel Closes Hearing. Here's what's next for Park City Wind Cables by Heather McCarran, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. A decision about whether or not to give Ambergrid Renewables the green light to land power cables from its Park City Wind project at Craigsville Beach and route them under the Centerville River on the way to a proposed inland substation could be made as soon as September 19th. After a two-hour discussion that included comments from a number of residents, the Barnstable Conservation Commission on Tuesday closed its hearing continued from August 8th on the energy company's quest for permits to bring submarine cables from its 804-megawatt offshore wind farm ashore at the beach's west end. The hearing was held on Zoom and steamed via Barnstable government access. The choice to close the hearing, which means no more public comment will be taken, left the residents disappointed and with lingering questions. In an email sent to the board Wednesday morning and copied to the Times, residents Maria and Greg Gertie said closing the hearing instead of continuing it until September 19th, which would have allowed more public comment, effectively silenced citizens' voices. They, like others, were also critical of a three-minute time limit each member of the public was given to speak during the hearing. Residents want Barnstable's Park City hearing continued. They were given absolutely no opportunities to speak against, again to ask follow-up questions or observations about the hypothetical Park City wind project, said the Gertie couple wrote. While commissioners and representatives for Park City wind were allowed unlimited speaking time, they said. A continuation of the hearing would have needed to be requested by Ambergrid, but it was not. In an email to town manager Mark Ells on Wednesday night, the couple further expressed their disappointment and criticized the Conservation Board for not pushing hard enough for a continuation. Commissioner Chairman Tom Lee and other members on Tuesday night said they have enough information to vote, but Lee wanted to take it under advisement so the board could draft conditions. I don't want to rush this and make a mistake in terms of missing some special conditions in there. 21-day time frame started for Barnstable Conservation Commission for decision. By closing the hearing, the board started a 21-day statutory clock to issue a determination but got assurances from Ambergrid Vice President of Development for offshore wind Ken Kimmel that the company would concede to an extension should the commissioners need extra time to draft and legally review their conditions. The Conservation Board is considering the proposed installation of the two 275 kV submarine electric transmission cables in Nantucket Sound in the onshore duct bank system at Craigsville Beach and two Short Beach Road. The company bought the Short Beach Road property at the end of June for $430,000 according to town assessing records with plans to demolish the house on the property.
if approved the company plans to pass the power cables under the beach and then under the river by way of micro tunneling a trenchless construction technique after that the cables would be routed underground about four miles to a proposed substation on shoot flying hill road then nearly a mile to the existing eversource substation in oak street in west barnstable from there the project would connect with the iso ne electrical grid ultimately park city wind will provide power to connecticut residents express worries about micro tunneling under centerville river during tuesday's hearing residents again aired worries about how microtunneling under the river may negatively affect the river and wetland ecosystem, as well as about possible adverse effects on people and animals from electromagnetic fields or EMFs produced by the power lines under the seafloor, beach, and river. Some said more study needs to be given to recent unexplained whale deaths they worry could be linked to offshore wind development, while others raised questions about the financial viability of the project, questioned Ambergrid's pursuit of a landing at Craigsville Beach instead of an existing industrial site like the power plant at the Cape Cod Canal, and worried about the possibility of contamination at the substations. This is very upsetting. I just can't even imagine why we are even contemplating this project, said resident Shelley Sterling, calling the project an experiment with our town. Industrializing Barnstable this is the line in the sand. Once you cross it, you can't go back, said fellow resident Ellen Nozel, warning that we are industrializing Barnstable by hosting numerous offshore power cables and enormous electric substations. Residents Bob and Annie Schulte raised concerns about EMFs and suggested Ambergrid be required to supply a more detailed analysis of the potential impacts and to outline protections and schulte pointed out that young people often swim in the river and asked would you allow your kids or grandchildren to swim in the area of the proposed electrical lines ahead of the hearing Ambergrid submitted a lengthy supplemental document addressing many of the issues initially raised when deliberations opened last month Jack Vaccaro, a senior consultant with Epsilon Associates, an environmental engineering and consulting firm working with Ambergrid, said the project has been thoroughly designed to minimize impacts to the ecosystem. Chris Long, an expert in exposure and risk assessment from Gradient Core, also working with Ambergrid, addressed EMF concerns. He said putting the lines 10 feet or deeper underground, as is proposed, would make the effects of the EMF negligible. Further, he said, placing conduits in close proximity to others cancels the magnetic fields. Regarding the project's ability to sell the power, Kimmel said, contrary to what people have said, the project is under a power purchase contract with Connecticut, and in the event things fall through financially, which he said is very unlikely, the host community agreement with Barnstable includes an extensive array of business insurance policies that list the town as a beneficiary. As they prepare to vote, some commissioners, including William Hearn and John Abodley, called attention to the board's jurisdictional limitations while acknowledging the residents' concerns. They noted the board lacks authority to address many of them. Also included on the front page is a picture of a parade entitled Wild Windmill Weekend. Sherry O'Brien of Extraordinary Arts in New Bedford waves to the crowd as she walks down Route 6 during Sunday's parade. Sunday morning's parade was a part of the 46th Eastham Windmill Weekend festivities. To see more photos, you can visit CapeCodTimes.com.
Debbie Abbott, this year's Windmill Weekend honoree, waves as she is driven down the parade route. She worked from the Eastham Fire Department for 19 years and served on the planning board and the 1651 Forest Advisory Committee, according to the Windmill Weekend Facebook page. Abbott's parents, George and Rosemary Abbott, were the 1999 Eastham Windmill Weekend honorees. Photos by Marilee Cassidy, Cape Cod Times. The next story, Falmouth Man Pleads Guilty to Death of Danielle Taylor by Zane Razig, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. A 36-year-old man pleaded guilty on Friday at Barnstable Superior Court to killing a Mashpee woman in 2021, according to a release from Cape and Islands District Attorney Robert J. Gabois. Kleber Mariano of Falmouth pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and the death of Danielle Taylor, Judge Mark Gildia sentenced Mariano to life in prison with the possibility of parole. The Barnstable County Grand Jury indicted Mariano on December 2, 2021. In a statement, Galbois thanked the Massachusetts State Police and Falmouth Police for their work in the case and also expressed the deepest sympathies to the family of Ms. Taylor. The case was prosecuted by First Assistant Jessica Alumba, Assistant District Attorney Dana Hatchell, and Victim Witness Assistant Deborah McCoy. What happened at the Cape Wind Waterfront Resort in 2021? On February 8, 2021, Falmouth Police conducted a well-being check on Kleber Mariano after hearing he had sent text messages and phone calls indicating he was suicidal. Police went to the Cape Wind Waterfront Resort and tea ticket where they found Danielle Taylor, 30, of Mashpee, strangled on the floor. Mariano was on the bed in a pool of blood and had reportedly tried to kill himself with injuries to his neck and right hand. Both were taken to Falmouth Hospital, where Taylor was pronounced dead. An autopsy found the cause of death was asphyxia by strangulation. Who was Danielle Taylor? Members of Taylor's family had previously told the Times the two had dated and had lived at the motel. They were together on and off for 10 years and had broken up shortly before Taylor's killing. Taylor had gone to the motel to collect her belongings. A mother of five, she loved spending time with her children, as well as nieces and nephews, family members previously said, and loved to be outdoors and to travel. She was taking psychology classes and worked different jobs, including as a certified nursing assistant and as a housekeeper for Shoreway Acres Inn in Falmouth. One of Taylor's sisters previously told the Times that Taylor had said she'd just finished school for nursing before her death. In the Cape and Islands section, Born Sewer Board Balances Demand for Hookups with Grease and Glitches by Paul Gately, special to the Cape Cod Times, Buzzards Bay. Cooking grease problems at a Buzzards Bay restaurant, sporadic shutdowns at the new $9.7 million waste treatment plant in Buzzards Bay, and Bourne Recreation Authority plans to tie 91 campsites at Bourne Scenic Park into the Buzzards Bay sewage system are the trifecta of issues facing the Bourne Sewer Commission. The town engineering and health departments are investigating internal and external grease trap issues at the Wei Ho restaurant. The commission has scheduled a September 12th hearing on compliance issues related to the restaurant adhering to town sewer rules and regulations. Town Administrator Marlene McCollum said at an August 29th commission meeting, the immediate problem involves handling of cooking grease on site, while the wider issue is the material getting into the sewer system and clogging waste delivery and treatment. 
The internal system in the restaurant has been replaced, McCollum told commissioners. The outside system at the restaurant was not replaced and is caked with grease, health agent Terry Garano said at the August 29th meeting. McCollum, Garano, and engineering technician Tim Leiden told sewer commissioners that the restaurant grease problems have persisted since last year. Scenic Park campsites tie in to sewer system in review. The Recreation Authority, meanwhile, for the second time, is asking for a waste system tie-in for 91 campsites in the western section of the Scenic Park campground, which has 439 sites and sits next to the Cape Cod Canal. The disposal allocation would total 8,190 seasonal gallons per day, or 90 gallons per site, according to Horsley Written Group. Authority General Manager Barry Johnson said the section of the campground falls within Bourne's Intermunicipal Sewage Agreement with Wareham. The last time we were told we were outside the IMA, Johnson said in an August 20th interview, now we're within the IMA? Sewer Commissioner Mary Jane Mastrolangelo, however, wants to overlay map of the sewer connection tie-in to be sure we're in the zone acceptable to the IMA with Wareham, she said on August 29th. McCollum said town staffers need more time to review Horsley-Witten plans. We're very open-minded and supportive of this request, but we just need more time to look at it carefully. We don't see any heartburn or roadblocks, she said August 29th. The authority wants to secure a waste system tie-in and then proceed to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, which owns the campground for project approval. Operating issues persist at new waste treatment plant. The waste treatment plant failed August 18th and waste flow was diverted to Wareham, Leiden said at the August 29th meeting. He said the facility was down one week and Weston and Sampson operators and system manufacturers Kubota of Arizona were troubleshooting the problem with no answers yet found. Leiden also said the resulting diversion of waste flow did not lead to sewage allocation limits under the intermunicipal agreement with Wareham being exceeded, but operations otherwise have become complicated. The facility is receiving poor marks about what plagues it and whether it adequately represents the economic development potential that town officials cited when selling the facility to the public, said Buzzards Bay resident Gary Maloney at the August 29th meeting. The system has been up and running for about two years. On that front, Leiden said, the plant suffers sporadic computer problems and needs an appropriate backup system on site to deal with issues that arise related to circuitry and operational controls. We rely on these automation systems so much that that's what's failed us, he said. I think we work the kinks out and we have a backup and we have a little more knowledge, we'll be better able to handle this. Leiden said efforts continue to deal with odor controls at the facility. He says the town needs to invest in odor control maintenance capacities along with determining trends that include weather conditions and days of the week when issues arise. I want people to know we're looking into solutions, Leiden said. I just think it might be one of those things that's slow to understand what degree of odor control we need. We're trying to find that. The next Cape and Islands story. Photo shoot. A September harvest that's a taste of summer by Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times, USA Today Network. September is the traditional season of harvest, tomatoes, beans, and squash. 
but the backyard raised bed garden never quite provides the bounty promised when purchasing seed packages in late winter. The old oak gives a bit too much afternoon shade. Early season bugs of some type chew perfect tiny holes and many leaves. Once they arrive, once they retire, the critters arrive. Early morning grazing deer have no problem nibbling over the three-foot fence. But the true vandals are chipmunks, tunneling under the bed, making a labyrinth of openings, usually between the yellow beans as they start to flower. Experience is taught that tomatoes need maximum security, so they are raised up on crates, planted in buckets, and circled with hardware cloth metal fencing. The varmints wait until ripening is complete before attacking, striping them from the vines, taking one bite and leaving the rest of the red ripe fruit on the ground. One post-Labor Day crop that is reliable. But there is one post-Labor Day crop that's always reliable. Prunus Maritima, the beech plum. Mother Nature nurtures the crop all summer, and this year the bees must have been busy in spring as it is a banner season. The harvest requires only a pair of long pants and an old hand-woven basket with a neck strap. The fruit-laden shrub can be found across the cape, hugging the sand dunes. It does live in perfect harmony with poison ivy, so caution is advised. All pickers have their favorite secret spots. Always stay on public lands or secure permission to pick in private areas, and don't be surprised when the locals won't divulge where to find the fruit. Searching out a spot is all part of the fun. For first-timers, the recommended ready is Plum Crazy, first published in 1973 by author Elizabeth Post Morell. It can be found in local libraries and bookstores. It presents a fascinating history of the plant along with enough plum recipes to satisfy anyone. Morell's foreword perfectly describes the experience. Working with beach plums is like taking a vacation. If you keep a good supply at home, you can have a taste of summer any time of the year and usually a water view while picking them. Do bring along a camera. The jelly is used up quickly, but a photograph lasts forever. Included with this story is a picture of beach plums. And it reads, beach plums take in the September sun, ripening to perfection along Barnstable Harbor. Photo by Steve Heelslip, Cape Cod Times. We've reached the halfway point of today's reading, and there are no obituaries listed for today. Back to our stories. Nation and World Briefs. Mossad chief accuses Iran of plotting deadly attacks. Jerusalem. The head of Israeli's Mossad spy agency on Sunday said that Israel is prepared to strike in the heart of Tehran's to track down the perpetrators of what he said were over two dozen Iranian attempts to hit Israeli and Jewish targets around the world. Speaking at a security conference, David Barnea said the Israeli and its allies have foiled 27 attacks over the past year in Europe, Africa, Southeast Asia, and South America. The plots being pursued by these teams were orchestrated, masterminded, and directed by Iran Barnea, told the conference at the Reichman University. He added that as we speak, Iran is trying to carry out additional attacks. Barnea said Israel would go after the agents involved in the plots as well as the commanders who sent them. These prices will be exacted deep inside Iran, in the heart of Tehran he said. Operation to extract American researcher from cave advances. Turkey. Rescue teams on Sunday in Turkey successfully carried an American researcher up from the depths of a cave at 3,412 feet to the 
six feet mark where he will be where he will rest at a base camp before they continue the taxing journey to the surface an experienced caver mark dickey 40 started vomiting on september 2nd because of stomach bleeding while on an expedition with a handful of others in the cave in southern turkey's taurus mountains one of the deepest in the world according to experts a rescue operation began saturday afternoon with doctors paramedics and experienced cavers from across europe rushing to help they set up small medical base camps at various levels along the shaft providing dickey an opportunity to rest during the slow and arduous extrication mark was delivered to the campsite at 700 meters as of 324 local time at this stage he will set out again after resting and having the necessary treatments the federation of turkey wrote on its official account on x formerly known as twitter sri lanka's president will appoint committee to probe bombings sri lanka sri lanka's president said sunday he will appoint a committee chaired by a retired supreme court judge to investigate allegations made in a british television report that the south Asian countries' intelligence was complicit in the 2019 Easter Sunday bombings that killed 269 people. The attacks, which included simultaneous suicide bombings, targeted three churches and three tourist hotels. The dead included 42 foreigners from 14 countries. President Renil Wickmanshi decision to appoint a committee headed by a judge to investigate claims that Sri Lanka intelligence had a hand in the bombings that were carried out by Islamic militants came under pressure from opposition, lawmakers, religious leaders, activists, as well as victims' relatives. They say the previous probes failed to reveal the truth behind the bombings. The committee's primary mission is to investigate the serious allegations recently brought to light by Channel 4 and a broadcast video, the President's office said in a statement Sunday. It said the allegations have added fuel to the fire. 11 hurt when walkway collapses during Maine Open Lighthouse event, Portland, Maine. 11 lighthouse enthusiasts were hurt when a walkway collapsed, sending people tumbling into mudflats below during an annual event that encourages tours of Maine's beloved beacons. The wooden walkway collapsed at Doubling Point Lighthouse in, on Saturday afternoon. The lighthouse was open to the public as part of the Maine Open Lighthouse Day, which is a day when the state's scenic lighthouses are open to the public. Five of the 11 injured people were taken to hospital, said Bath. Fire Department Deputy Chief Chris Cummings. The collapse of the bridge happened at low tide and caused some of the victims to fall 8 to 10 feet, and they landed in a somewhat rocky mudflat below. He said numerous public safety departments responded to the scene. Ill worker rescued in Antarctica, now in hospital in Australia, Canberra, Australia. An Australian who fell ill while working at an Antarctic research station is now in a hospital in Australia after being rescued by an icebreaker, a government agency said Sunday. The icebreaker RSV's round trip between the Australian Antarctic Division headquarters in Hobart, Tasmania State, and Australia's Casey Station covered more than 4,000 miles and took more than two weeks as the Southern Hemisphere winter became spring. The RSV Nuinya has returned to Hobart after the successful medical evacuation of unwell expeditioner from Casey Research Station, a division statement said. 
the expeditioner has disembarked the RSV and has been transferred to the Royal Hobart Hospital, where they will receive specialist assessment and care, it added. 2020 Census Data Limited for Tribal Nations. New privacy methods create trade-off between accuracy confidentiality. Mike Schneider and Morgan Lee, the Associated Press, Santa Fe, New Mexico. During the 2020 census, Native American leaders across the U.S. invested time and resources to make sure their members were tallied during the headcount, which determines political power and federal funding. But the detailed data sets from the 2020 census they will receive this month are more limited and less accurate than they were in the previous census. And it isn't because the COVID-19 pandemic severely limited outreach efforts. Rather, it's due to new privacy methods implemented by the U.S. Census Bureau in order to protect the confidentiality of participants, one of which introduces international eras, errors or noise to the data. At stake is the availability and accuracy of data helping tribal leaders make decisions about where to locate grocery stores or schools and estimate future population growth. Census numbers determine funding for social programs, education, roads, and elderly care for tribes that have been historically undercounted. It was never clearly articulated to them by the Census Bureau that this would be the case, that they wouldn't receive the level of data that they received from the previous census, said New Mexico State demographer Robert Radigan. In those tribal conversations, it was never made clear that the data would be available or that it would be so noisy in these smaller areas. In fact, more than 80% of tribes in the U.S. won't receive the full suite or detailed demographic data from 2020 census at tribal area levels they had in the 2010 census because of the changes, according to a report released in August by the Center for Indian County Development, which is a part of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis. Many leaders in Indian County country are unaware that they are going to get fewer tables when the detailed data sets are released September 21st, said Brandy Liberty, a consultant who helps tribes get federal and state grants. It's going to be difficult for a lot of tribes when they need the data, said Liberty, a member of the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. The 2020 census put the American Indian and Alaska Native alone population at 3.7 million people. It was 9.6 million for those who identified as American Indian and Alaska Native in combination with another race. The Census Bureau provides detailed data for 1,200 American Indians and Alaska Native tribes and villages. The privacy changes to the detailed census data will harm the ability of self-governing tribes to meet the needs of their citizens, the Federal Reserve Report said. The Census Bureau told the Associated Press that it doesn't comment on outside reports but acknowledged the number of tables for tribes in 2020 were reduced from 2010 because of privacy concerns. The privacy changes arrived during heightened sensitivities about who controls data from the Indian country. The concept of tribal data sovereignty, or just data sovereignty in general, has been kind of elevated. In a sense, this is their data. You can say that it's their problem for the smaller tribal communities that won't even get the detailed age data. It's possible that the bigger problem comes from the tribes that do receive the data. Nobody knows how inaccurate those data are. 
That's because of the privacy method, known as differential privacy, uses algorithms to create intentional errors to data by adding or subtracting people from the actual account in order to obscure the identity of any given participant in a particular area. The Census Bureau has said the differential privacy algorithms are needed because without them, the growth of easily available third-party data combined with modern computing could allow hackers to piece together the identities of participants and its census and surveys in violation of the law. The statistical agency already has released 2020 census data used to draw political districts and determine how many congressional seats and electoral college votes each state gets. Deferential privacy impacts on accuracy is greatest when population totals are broken down by race, age, and sex, making it harder to understand demographic changes in individual tribal areas, the Federal Reserve report said. Also complicating the availability of detailed tribal census data are new population thresholds by the Census Bureau. The thresholds determine how much tribes or racial or ethnic groups get for a particular area. In 2010, in order to protect people's identities, a tribe or a racial ethnic group in any particular geography like a county needed at least 100 people to get all 71 available data tables. In 2020, dynamic population thresholds are being used, with the size of the tribe or racial or ethnic group in a location determining how many data tables they get. For national or state-level data, the 40% of all tribes with less than 500 people across the U.S. will receive only county or statewide population totals, keeping them from getting the more detailed data they got in 2010. At the tribal area, 80% of tribes will only receive population totals instead of breakdowns of age data reported by sex according to the Federal Reserve report. American Indian or Alaska Native people on reservations were among the most undercounted populations in the 2020 census, with an estimated 5.6% of residents missed according to an evaluation by the Census Bureau. The COVID-19 pandemic severely limited the the outreach efforts many tribal communities had planned. Many tribes closed their borders in an effort to stop the virus spread, severely restricting the ability to get a headcount. Plus, the digital divide in some tribal communities made responding to the headcount difficult during the first census. It might have been worse. The Census Bureau earlier contemplated eliminating detailed tribal tables altogether, said James Tucker, a voting rights attorney for the Native American Rights Fund. It could have been really bad, said Tucker, who was a former chair of a Census Bureau advisory committee, but they took it to heart to make the data as accurate as possible while balancing that against privacy concerns. In People in the News, staffers accuse Fallon, Tonight Show leaders, of toxic workplace. While late-night host Jimmy Fallon has been off-air amid Hollywood's actors and writers' strike, some of its staff members are speaking out about what they say is a toxic workplace culture behind The Tonight Show. In a Rolling Stone investigation published Thursday, two current and 14 former employees of the NBC talk show say they experienced Working on the show included declining mental health, intimidation from higher-ups, including the 48-year-old Fallon, and poor treatment because of Fallon's erratic behavior. The staffer, whose jobs ranged from production crew to office employees and writers, all requested anonymity out of fear of retaliation. In a statement to Rolling Stone, an NBC spokesperson said, We are incredibly proud of The Tonight Show and providing a respectful working environment is top priority. 
YouTuber Frankie, business partner to remain jailed on child abuse charges. A Utah mother of six who gave parenting advice via a once popular YouTube channel called Eight Passengers made her initial court appearance Friday on charges that she and the owner of a relationship counseling business abused and starved her two young children. The proceedings were delayed by about 45 minutes due to technical difficulties after more than 1,300 people sought to log in to watch the virtual hearing, said Tanya Mashburn, spokesperson for the Utah State Court. Ruby Frankie, 41, and Jody Hildebrandt, 54, were charged with six felony counts of aggravated child abuse after their arrests on August 30th at Hildebrandt's house in the southern Utah city of Ivins. Both appeared before Judge Eric Gentry via video from jail wearing orange-striped uniforms and spoke little. Their attorneys waived readings of the charges and the women did not enter pleas. Gentry ordered them to remain jailed without bail and scheduled their next hearings for September 21st. Their attorneys, Lamar Winward for Frankie and Douglas Terry for Hildebrandt, said they were going to ask for bail hearings. Country Music's Brian says he was jailed briefly in Oklahoma. Country Music star Zach Bryan was arrested by the Oklahoma Highway Patrol and jailed briefly Thursday in northeastern Oklahoma, according to a video posted on his account on the social media site X, formerly Twitter. Brian said he was driving through Veneta, about 55 miles northeast of Tulsa, when his security guard, who was driving behind him, was stopped by an officer. Brian, who is from Ulaga, about 25 miles Northeast of Tulsa said he also stopped and after 10 to 15 minutes got out of his vehicle to smoke a cigarette when the officer told him to get back inside the vehicle or be taken to jail. I get too lippy with him, Brian said. I'm just mouthing off like an idiot and the officer was just doing their job. Brian said he spent a few hours at the Craig County Jail before being released on bond and that he spoke to the officer and shook hands with them before leaving. Brian, in an earlier post on X Row, he is truly sorry to the officers and that he was out of line. Man shot at Lil Baby concert in Memphis, police think it was targeted. One person was shot and wounded at a Memphis concert headlined by rapper Lil Baby in what was believed to be a premeditated targeted shooting. The Memphis Police Department posted on social media that officers responded to a report of a shooting late Thursday at FedEx Forum, the 19,000-seat arena, is home to the NBA's Memphis Grizzlies and the University of Memphis men's basketball team. A male victim was taken to a hospital and was no longer in critical condition Friday, according to police, who said no other inquiries were reported. Police said they were working to identify and find the shooter. They did not yet know how the shooter managed to bring a gun into the arena, which contracts with a private security company to screen people for weapons. Lil Baby was rushed off the stage when shots were fired, WREG-TV reported. Police said the concert was canceled and the building was evacuated. Hurricane Lee charting new course and weather by Jeff Martin, the Associated Press, Atlanta. Hurricane Lee is rewriting old rules of meteorology, leaving experts astonished at how rapidly it grew into a Category 5 hurricane. Lee, which just as quickly dropped to a still dangerous Category 3, could still be a harbinger as ocean temperatures climb, spawning fast-growing major hurricanes that could threaten communities farther north and inland, experts say. 
Hurricanes are getting stronger at higher latitudes, said Marshall Shepard, director of the University of Georgia's Atmospheric Sciences program. If that trend continues, that brings into play places like Washington, D.C., New York, and Boston. Hyperintensification. As the oceans warm, they act as jet fuel for hurricanes. That extra heat comes back to manifest itself at some point, and one of the ways it does is through stronger hurricanes. During the overnight hours Thursday, Lee shattered the standard for what meteorologists call rapid intensification, when a hurricane sustained winds increased by 35 miles per hour in 24 hours. This one increased by 80 miles per hour, Shepard said. I can't emphasize this enough. We used to have this metric of 35 miles per hour, and here's a storm that did twice that amount, and we're seeing that happen more frequently, said Shepard, who describes what happened with Lee as hyperintensification. Inland threats. Category 5 status. When sustained winds are at least 157 miles per hour is quite rare. Only about 4.5% of named storms in the Atlantic Ocean have grown to a Category 5 in the past decade, said Brian McNoldy, a scientist and hurricane researcher at the University of Miami. More intense major hurricanes also are threatening communities farther inland because of the monster storms can grow so powerful that they remain dangerous, hurricanes for longer distances over land. Hurricane Adalia was the latest example. It came ashore in the Florida panhandle last month and remained a hurricane as it entered South Georgia, where it slammed into the city of Valdosta, more than 70 miles from where it made landfall. In 2018, Hurricane Michael carved a similar path of inland destruction, tearing up cotton crops and pecan trees and leaving widespread damage across South Georgia. Monster Waves Although it's too early to know how close Lee might come to the U.S. East Coast, New Englanders are keeping a rare, weary eye on the storm. As it creeps closer, it could bring high seas and rip currents up and down the eastern seaboard. What we are going to see from Lee and we're very confident if it's going to be a major wave producer, said Mike Brennan, director of the National Hurricane Center, in a Friday briefing. This morning, the highest significant wave height we were analyzing in Lee was between 45 and 50 feet, and the highest waves could even be double that, Brennan said, speaking of swells far out to sea. Most of West Maui can welcome back visitors next month, the Associated Press, Honolulu. Most of West Maui will officially reopen to travelers October 8th under a new wildfire emergency proclamation signed Friday by Hawaii, Gov Hawaii Governor Josh Green. Non-essential travel to much of the island's western coastline has been strongly discouraged since devastating wildfires killed at least 115 people in the historic town of Lahaina last month. State tourism officials initially urged travelers to stay away from Maui so residents and agencies could focus on emergency response efforts and supporting those displaced by the fires. In mid-August, officials began encouraging tourists to return to other parts of Maui, avoiding the burn zone and spending money to help the region recover. On Thursday, Green told a meeting of the State Council on Revenues that he expected authorities to reopen most of West Maui to travelers in October, with the exception of the fire-damaged neighborhoods. The area, which includes beach resorts in Kanpali, north of historic Lahaina, has 11,000 hotel rooms. That's half Maui's total. In the emergency proclamation signed Friday, the governor said the previous guidance that strongly discouraged non-essential travel to West Maui will be discontinued October 8th. 
Tourism is a major economic driver in Hawaii, and the wildfire disaster prompted state officials to lower their 2023 economic growth prediction for the entire state to 1.1%, down from 1.8%. The number of visitors arriving on Maui sank about 70% after the August 8th fire, down to 2,000 a day, and only half of the available hotel rooms that are occupied, said Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association President Mufi Hanneman. Airlines have begun offering steep discounts on flights to Hawaii, and some resorts have flashed roommates by 20% or are offering a fifth night free. In the Ask Carolyn section. Hi, Carolyn. I have a parent in their early 80s who would like us to take a trip together as a family. This parent has stated repeatedly that it is very important to them. I have mostly a good relationship with this parent, but when traveling, they are controlling and anxious, emphasis on controlling. They have also stated they will pay for me and my family to join them. I don't want to go on this trip. It will not be fun due to the controlling parent usually getting upset at one time or another and my feeling I have to keep everyone happy and do what this parent wants. Plus, this parent is 80 and mobility is limited to some extent, less of a problem but still a consideration. How do I get out of any trip? I love my parent. I worry about regret after they die. I worry about devastating them since they are single parent and it's not likely they would go on their own. But based on prior trips, I do not want to go at all. Help. Dear Anonymous, would you go on the trip if you called it something other than a vacation? If you reminded yourself it's not for you, but for your parent? If your parent needed a ride to a medical appointment, then you'd probably say yes and deal with your parent's crankiness and control issues and the overpriced parking and handle all of the logistics of limited mobility and sit in a bland stale waiting room for hours bored out of your mind, right? You wouldn't opt out of based on the unlikelihood of it being not any fun. So, you have every right to opt out of a forced vacation or appointment you want no part of, always, and how much you expose your family to it is a separate calculation. But there is ample room here for you to change your standards from fun to rewarding or generous or box checking or whatever else you feel if you rallied big for your parent in what they likely is the home stretch regarding vacation. I'm also constantly getting nagged, but traveling with my parents and in-laws is kind of awful and stressful. And with limited time off and constant work stress, this is not how I want to spend my vacation week. I know it's selfish, and yes, I am plagued with guilt, but this also feels like emotional blackmail, and I've been subject to a lifetime of it by narcissistic parents. I'm done, and I'm on your side. Anonymous. Dear nagged, as you should be, and it's not selfish at all. Wow, to take the breaks you need, you're entitled. Your situation is actually quite different. Yours is ongoing and Anonymous is making an after-they-die calculation. For which, to be clear, no is still a valid option. If it's feasible, I urge therapy for your guilt. It appears to be someone has reached deep into your life choices and declared them their business and persuaded this to be true and that your time belongs to them. Whatever hours of emotional work it takes to uncouple yourself from this manipulation will, I am confident, feel immensely well spent. Today in history. Today is Monday, September 11th, the 254th day of 2023. There are 111 days left in the year. On this date, in, in 1789, Alexander Hamilton was appointed the first U.S. Secretary of the Treasury. In 1814, 
an American fleet scored a decisive victory over the British in the Battle of Lake Champlain in the War of 1812. In 1936, Boulder Dam, later renamed the Hoover Dam, began operation as President Franklin D. Roosevelt pressed a key in Washington to signal the startup of the dam's first hydroelectric generator. In 1941, Groundbreaking took place for the Pentagon in an anti-Semitic speech. Charles A. Lindbergh told an American first rally in Des Moines, Iowa, that the British, the Jewish, and the Roosevelt administration were pushing the United States toward war. In 1954, the Miss America pageant made its network TV debut on ABC. In 1967, the comedy variety program The Carol Burnett Show premiered on CBS. In 1972, the Munich Summer Olympics, where 11 Israeli athletes and several others were killed, ended. In 1973, Chilean President Salvador Allende died during a violent military coup. In 1997, Scotland voted to create its own parliament after 290 years of union with England. In 2001, nearly 3,000 people were killed at 19 Al-Qaeda hijackers seized control of four jetliners, sending two of the planes into New York's World Trade Center, one into the Pentagon and the fourth into a field in western Pennsylvania. In 2006, in a primetime address, President George W. Bush invoked the memory of the victims of the 9-11 attacks as he staunchly defended the war in Iraq, though he acknowledged that Saddam Hussein was not responsible for the attacks. We've reached the end of our reading for today, Monday, September 11th, 2023 of the Cape Cod Times. Thanks for listening.